Welcome to the house of haunted scriptures, where all October long we'll be talking about the bloodiest, the creepiest, the scariest stories in all of the Bible. What you're about to hear may disturb you. Hey there, happy October. You know, people love to get spooky this time of year. And Halloween can be a genuinely scary time. Between the rambunctious pranksters to uh, kids openly inviting demonic entities into their lives just for the thrill of it. And then there's the disgusting horror of candy corn. But, my friends, there is nothing scarier than the Bible in the wrong hands. Or maybe I could say there's no story more terrifying than the Bible if read through the wrong eyes. I would say most Christians really do believe deep, deep in their hearts that God is good and God is love. But sometimes we open the Bible and it makes God out to be scarier than any spook we might encounter behind Big Lots at 3 a.m., Uh, So my aim here is to take these theological skeletons out of the closet and figure out what's really going on. Uh, Bill Johnson says that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. If we read something about God, but we can't find it in Jesus, we have permission to question it. Now, that's not to say that we just toss the Bible out. Um, But if Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God's nature and something we read contradicts Jesus, then there's got to be more to the story. Um, So if you want like a more thorough explanation of that idea, um, check out my episode, The Glories of the Cross, Part 3, Humble King. (sighs) So I'm going to be putting myself out there in a new kind of way. I'm going to let you in on some of the most vulnerable questions and doubts that a human being can have about God. When I begin to release what I'm about to say, I am fully aware that I am opening myself up to a whole world of criticism. So why am I doing this? Um, This whole series, what this is really about for me, this is about my dad. There's something inside of human beings that resonates deeply when we see true beauty. Like when we encounter a colorful sunset or welcome a child into the world, uh, we feel fundamentally drawn in at the core of our being. There's like this undefinable rightness to these moments of transcendence. Uh, And the biblical word for this is shalom. It's often translated peace, but it's so much deeper than just peace. It's that thing that I'm talking about, that indescribable sense of wholeness and completeness when everything is as it should be. However, this wholeness is not restricted to fleeting moments, but it's actually hardwired into creation itself when God saw everything and spoke, it is very good. But on the other hand, We know very well what it feels like to be outside of shalom. Whether it's the hopeless feeling of toiling away at a job we hate, or maybe watching a loved one waste away with cancer, we have all felt what it's like to experience the effects of sin. So have you ever wondered why death feels so wrong? 
if you've ever seen a corpse, there's this deep, sickening feeling involved. And we all feel the ache of injustice if we see maybe a dead child. But if death is natural, why do we even mourn so deeply those who die of natural causes? Because according to the true design of our beautiful God, death was never part of the plan. It is absolutely foreign to our blueprint. Um, and, and I would also argue that it's foreign to God's original intent for nature. Death is the enemy of all that God is. The reason I'm doing this series is because I am sick of people saying that God is both life and death, both love and hate and sickness and health. You know, he's not your uncle's Ed Hardy yin-yang tattoo. And I'm really tired of religion painting the face of my Abba Father with the face of the devil and then blaming the victims for walking away. No, when Jesus came, he revealed to us the exact image and likeness of the Father. You know, there's a reason why stories like the prodigal son uh, or the forgiving of the woman caught in adultery, there's a reason why those stories touch us so deeply. Because those stories speak to that thing inside each of us that dares to wonder, could God really be that good, that merciful, that gracious? In the culture surrounding ancient Israel, there were lots of death cults. There were many gods of death. Um, and God, our God, Yahweh, did not demand separation from those gods because he's something like them. No, he did it. He demanded separation because he's actually nothing like them. And so in this podcast series, um, I believe there's an invitation, both for you, the listener, and for me as the tour guide. And it's an invitation to taste and see that the Lord is bigger and better than we've ever imagined. He is good. Before I go any further, I just want to say, and you, you probably know this by now if you've listened to my show for any amount of time, but I love theology. Um, I also love mystical experiences. I love rolling on the floor, laughing, getting hammered, wasted, trashed, bashed, cra- you know, all of that. I love the charismatic experience. But I have noticed that as a charismatic, I will encounter this beautiful God, this 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 God that is so gorgeous and, and compelling in every way. That my soul, it's like I'm drawn in. It's like its like more than a kid to candy. Like I need more of this good God. But then um, because of certain teachings that I had had or because of you know certain things that people believe about God, uh, it actually saps those experiences of their power. You begin to doubt like, wait. So for me, talking about theology is never an exercise in dead dryness. No, it is actually there to enhance the experience of the Holy Spirit. Um, I want to say a quick word about shelving. Have you ever read a scripture that got under your skin? That felt like, have you ever felt like you read something that just put something between you and God, like rather than drawing you closer? Um, I know this feeling really well. In fact, a few years back, I was working in a lot of construction, like painting houses, installing floors and whatnot. And I decided... I'm going to listen to the entire Bible on audiobook. Um, (laughs) 
So I was able to sit through like a couple of genocides, but by the time I got to Deuteronomy, I was really struggling. Uh, and this is where I learned about shelving. So for every verse in the Bible that's had me cowering under the table, I found that if I ask long enough and keep searching, eventually I will get clarity. I realized that this verse in question was really just bumping up against a deep-seated belief in my subconscious that maybe God isn't that good. So when this fear kicks in, our emotions actually prevent us and blind us from seeing other possible interpretations. But time and time again, I found that if I keep searching with the underlying belief uh, that God is ultimately good, eventually I will come out the other side with the truth. And I can't even describe the sense of relief that comes with this. Um, But I will say too that this breakthrough in understanding doesn't always happen immediately. So sometimes you just need to put a verse on the shelf until the Holy Spirit reveals the truth to you. But in the meantime, keep looking at Jesus because all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in him. Stick closely with him and you will finally get your answers eventually. And so I just want to be honest. There are many passages that are still on the shelf for me. But I want to invite you into some of my journey in discovering that God is actually not the horrible ogre of religion, but he is truly our loving Abba. Before I go any further, I just need to ask something of you. This first section, this first story, we're going to have to deal with a lot of different um, scriptures and ideas and concepts and theology. This is going to be the really dense part. But the second half, um, once we do the work on the front end, it's going to come together a lot more easily. So if if you get into this and you're just kind of like, man, I'm struggling to kind of figure out what the heck this has to do with me. Um, just stick around because I'm, I have somewhere that I'm going with this, but we have to undo a lot to get there. So with that, all that being said, who's ready to dive into the terrifying underbelly of the Bible? What you're about to hear may disturb you. Uh, if you've got a Bible or a smartphone or whatever, um, why don't you just open it up to Acts chapter 12. It says, Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace, because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat down on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not of a man. And immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to flourish and spread. (laughs) W.T.F. And the F stands for fun size Snickers, because this is a Christian podcast after all. Uh, <laughs> I love that it takes special care to note that he was eaten by worms and then died. That's just hilarious to me. But anyway, no, so the only thing that I won't accept is that my Abba father killed Herod. 
And I'll give you three reasons for that. And before I get into this, I just need you to please keep your hands, feet, and questions inside the ride at all times. Because I am a thousand percent sure that you will have questions like, well, what about, what about, what about? But please just suspend them until the end. I won't accept this as an act of God because one, the story doesn't say that. And that's important because there are passages uh, that we're going to deal with later that do explicitly attribute death to the hand of God. But this one does not happen to. Uh, number two, this argues with Jesus. Jesus specifically says it's the enemy that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Hebrews talks about how everything is placed under the feet of Jesus, and the last enemy is death. So death is an enemy of God. So just hold on here. Setting aside the entire Old Testament for a minute, uh, do we ever once see Jesus kill? You know, like the story of Jesus smiting the widows. Or how about the story of Jesus calling down fire on cities? Oh, wait. Nope. That was his disciples. And they got rebuked for that uh, because he said they don't know what spirit they're of. So real quick, I want you to put a mental pin in that word spirit. We'll come back to that. And also, number three, uh, why doesn't this kind of thing happen to worse people? This story is an anomaly. Like Herod, sure, he was a deeply confused twisted individual who did lots of evil acts um but he's hardly the worst offender in history and look he's not even the worst offender of his own day i mean what about caesar who you know is literally barbecuing christians and claiming the title of lord god and king so like if god never changes uh if he never changes why isn't he offing people like this on the daily uh <laughs> So I have to believe that there's something else going on here. Just a disclaimer, I, I honestly, I have more questions than answers, but I want to throw down some ideas. Um, and I'm not going to tell you what to think because I don't have hard answers. But what I do hope to accomplish here is to help you see that you don't have to believe the worst option. What I'm going to mention here, it might sound strange, but only because we're all used to hearing the same tired Sunday school answers about a two-faced God who loves unconditionally, but then will turn around and murder people uh, with worms, no less. Um, unconventional answers, that doesn't mean incorrect answers. So I want to give you two alternative theories uh, or schools of thought. Theory number one what you have to understand is that there's a very real spiritual realm. And I've heard so many of these baffling, and I'm using air quotes here, intellectual takes on the Bible, trying to say that ancient Jewish people were just ignorantly trying to explain with spiritual language what they didn't know how to articulate scientifically. Uh, like I once had a relative who was trying to like get a rise out of me by saying that all the people that Jesus raised from the dead were probably just in comas, and, you know, they just, they didn't really have doctors then, so they merely just thought they were dead. Um, but never mind the fact that even if that's true, I don't know of a single modern medical doctor who can snap people out of comas with only words. <laughs> but whatever, that's not what we're talking about here. When you dive into scholarly literature, you actually see that the Jews had a consistent and coherent and very 
supernatural worldview. Uh, Dr. Michael Heiser, who's the scholar in residence at Logos Bible Software, first made me aware of a cast of characters that are called the Divine Council. So uh, when we talk about spirit beings, we're all familiar with like angels and stuff like that. Um, but there's an actual government or structure or hierarchy to the spirit realm. And the B'nai Elohim, or sons of God, who have many names in scripture, um, you might know them as the heavenly host, the divine council, the little g gods, the courts of heaven, the mount of assembly, etc. Um, but in the New Testament, you might have heard of them as thrones, dominions, rulers, powers, authorities, and the heavenly places. Well, not all of them are evil like you might have been taught. Now, this isn't widely taught, but it's not as crazy as it sounds. Actually, the Bible Project, uh, which is a mainstream evangelical source, just did a series of videos on this, and I'll post a link for you. But here's what I'm getting at. Um, God has always intended to share his authority. Uh, and just like with humans, this actually, not only do we have free will, but spiritual beings have free will this automatically means there's room for the possibility of mistakes or even outright rebellion so god all throughout the old testament he asks these guys for their opinion lots of times and it, again it's not because he needs it but because he intentionally designed the universe to work this way he wants this so there's only one creator god but sometimes these governmental beings are called little g gods. And on a side note, that actually kind of helps you understand why the first commandment is to not have any other gods before him. So we actually get a glimpse of what one of these heavenly uh, council meetings looks like with the death of Ahab. The prophet who speaks against Ahab says this. This was his vision. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all of the hosts of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left and the lord said who will entice ahab that he may go up at the fall of ramoth gilead and one said one thing and another said another then a spirit came forward and stood before the lord saying i will entice him and the lord said to him by what means and he said i will go out and i will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets and he said, and, and the Lord said, you are to entice him and you shall exceed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. So sometimes these beings do what God wants and other times they don't. That doesn't make them evil or demonic. Like we're so used to black and white. It's like, like these angels either rebelled and fell or didn't, but I don't think it's that simple. Just because they have delegated authority doesn't mean that they always reflect the heart of God with their actions. For example, like is with this example, is God a liar? No, but they said their idea was let's send a lying spirit. Is God a killer? No, uh, but they kill Ahab, right? So it doesn't mean just because they do something that God may not have authored, it doesn't mean that he just takes away their delegated authority, right? Like even you, you serve God, but you're a complicated person with lots of different ideas, right? Um, psalm 82 actually hammers this home even more. The whole psalm is about how people aren't getting justice and it's God talking to his counsel. He says, 
God presides in the great assembly, and he renders judgment among the gods. He says, how long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and fatherless, uphold the cause of the poor and oppressed, rescue the weak and needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The gods, quote, know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. That's that phrase, B'nai Elohim. But you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. Uh, so apparently, it seems like this heavenly host, this council, seems like they were actually failing pretty hard at their job. And so in this verse, God is is commissioning them and telling them, calling them, hey, be who you're created to be. Uphold justice. Defend the poor. So even like the entire book of Job is kind of about how there's this realm of spiritual activity and a council, and it's not black and white. Um, it's, you know, it's kind of challenging the idea that people simply get what they deserve. No, but it actually shows us that... Um, folks in the spirit realm are capable of coloring outside the lines. And so we can't blame God for that. So going back to Herod, this passage says that it's the angel of the Lord. So what if the angel stepped out of line? Again, it's an anomaly. Where do you ever see this kind of thing happen in the New Testament? Maybe it was the council's idea like something had to be done about Herod and the best idea they could come up with that day was <laughs> let's kill him with worms. Does that sound like Abba Father to you? Does that sound like Jesus to you? Um, and this might sound like a weird answer, but only because we Westerners are completely ignorant about the divine counsel. So another interesting note is this takes immediately, uh, this event happens immediately after Peter was led out of Herod's prison by an angel. And it says that angel, the angel struck Peter to wake him up. Well, what if, <laughs> I mean, this might be a stretch, but what if the same angel that struck Peter is going rogue and out of anger striking Herod? It sounds weird, but this whole story is weird. So theory number two. When I was but a wee lad in Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry, one of our leaders, Chris Valatin, said something that really exploded my brain. Um, he talked about how the book of Acts is a lot like a documentary. It's simply telling us what happened. But that doesn't always mean that God endorsed the actions or words of the apostles. Like, just because it's in there doesn't mean it's what God wanted. For example, the story talks about how um, the apostles, they needed a new guy to fill Judas's spot. So basically, they, they roll dice. And um, I'm not trying to trash talk them here, but the guy they choose is never spoken of ever again. Um, later, however, by God's initiative, Paul becomes the missing apostle. So Acts... It is recording for us how things went down, but just because it's in there doesn't mean they made the right call with that move. And here's another thing. It doesn't mean, so it's not like they, the apostles just woke up one day and completely understood the mysteries of the gospel. Um, like, remember the story of when Paul, he's out there running around converting Gentiles and there's disputes about circumcision. And it says they were having trouble 
trying to figure out just how much Jewish law should be required for somebody to be a Christian. Like, how Jewish do you have to be to be a Christian? And so they think really long and hard, and they come up with a simple list of the most, most, most important things for new Christians to do. And these are the exact words of the Bible. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond these following requirements. You you are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. (laughs) Isn't that kind of like funny to you? Like, these are the guys who are in charge of everything. They are the ones who have all the answers. And here they are, and they say, well, it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. (laughs) It seemed good. And then later on, Paul just tells everybody not to really sweat the whole meat stuff. (laughs) So, So obviously there was an evolution in their understanding of the gospel. They didn't just wake up one day zapped with perfect knowledge. They actually, even as they were writing the Bible, they grew up into it as we all do. So here's my point. I do believe the Bible is completely inspired by God. God breathed. I believe it's authoritative. But the Bible was not dictated word for word by God. I said this before, but it wasn't like God said, Hey Siri, write this down in a book. Um, No, he gave his story to be written down by humans. And sometimes that human touch is really evident. So what I'm saying is, what if Luke assumed that the angel of God took out Herod, but maybe what was really going on is Luke is holding on to a Jewish idea of God's sovereignty that literally everything that happens is an act of God. That even where the dice fall is dictated by the Lord. Well, what if Luke still had yet to understand that it's actually the enemy that comes to steal, kill, and destroy? So so here's where I'm going with that. Here's my point. And this is huge to understand about the wrath of God. Um, what if Herod had so given himself over to evil that he opened the door and the destroyer took the opportunity to kill him? Um, one of my favorite scholars, Greg Boyd, talks about how evil cannibalizes itself. He talks about how all throughout Scripture, the judgment of God has never been a direct act of God, but actually it's merely people, um, it's him giving people over to what they truly demand and letting them experience the consequences. So at any given point right now, there are forces looking to steal, kill, and destroy, and we are mercifully protected from this reality. But if we demand and demand to step away from God, Not that he separates from us, but if we demand to step away from God, we are setting ourselves up for the worst. So I don't think that that means that it was God's heart for Herod to die. It's simply what happened. And maybe perhaps Luke attributed it to the hand of the Lord. And we'll talk a lot more about this kind of thing when I talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. But the judgment of God in this function... Um, all throughout scripture has always been for the purpose of people being restored. This sort of withdrawing of protection and allowing us to experience what we demand. Um, it's always for our good, never simply because God is ticked that somebody is taking his glory. 
but by now you probably have dozens and dozens of questions but i think it's a great time to take a break so let's just take a quick breather and then we'll get to everybody's favorite bedtime story ananias and sapphira Welcome back. And now that you're refreshed, let's talk about more death. Now, this is truly one of the weirdest stories in the Bible. So grab your lavender tea with honey and beanie babies and let's read this delightful little bedtime tale. It says, Now a man named Ananias, together working with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, carried him out, and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, it is, she said. That is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the Holy Spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. The young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Wow. Okay. (laughs) So let's just make a couple of quick observations. Does this passage explicitly say that God killed them? No. I think there are actually two people to blame here, and neither of them are Abba Father. So really quick, let's back up. Remember how I said the story of Herod was an anomaly? Well, this one is even more of an anomaly. Like, raise your hand real quick if you've ever lied. Have you ever split a cookie with someone and told them that they got the big half, but in fact, you ate the big half. I've done it. Maybe I did it in church on donut day, and thankfully, I'm not dead. My point is, people do stupider things in church every single day, and I have never once, never heard of someone dying in church. Well, except for a dude who died at a Robbie Dawkins meeting, but he was actually raised from the dead later, so I don't think that counts. Uh, But if God never changes and he was truly this upset, why wouldn't the killings continue to this day? Like, we wouldn't be able to even turn on the news without hearing about mysterious church deaths. (laughs) I just got a funny picture of turning on CNN and seeing them be like, 8,000 more killings at the Church of God this weekend. No, it's ridiculous. So what else could be happening? I think it's very telling to note that it says Peter sensed that Satan had filled the heart of Ananias. And like I said earlier, maybe Ananias had a whole lot more going on at home than simply lying about money. 
maybe somehow he was so deeply given over to the demonic realm that the enemy took the chance to take him out. Uh, Jesus said that words are spirit and they are life. Proverbs says that both life and death are in the power of the tongue. So it sure seems to me that Peter, who should have been busy calling out Christ within Ananias, instead cursed Ananias, and then Satan gleefully took the opportunity to kill him. Uh, This is even more explicitly stated when Peter literally declares to Sapphira, hey, you're going to die now, and she drops dead on the spot. Um, As my friend Tyler Johnson points out in his really awesome book, How to Raise the Dead, Uh, Peter actually has quite the history of misusing words. Um, There's there's the story of Simon the sorcerer where he sees the apostles doing miracles and he asks, hey, can I buy the Holy Ghost too? (laughs) Here's my money. And Peter wasn't exactly empathetic. Actually, instead, instead of saying, hey, um, actually, bud, this is a free gift of grace, so why don't you put that money bag away? No, it says this exactly. May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he might forgive you for ever having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. You know, think about this. What level of discernment does it take to see that somebody is captive to sin? Absolutely none. And actually, Paul makes it crystal clear that we are not to hold people's sins against them. He also says that we are to regard no one according to the flesh, but everyone as already new in Christ. Jesus said if we don't forgive people, their sins will be retained. Now, I don't believe this means that they aren't forgiven, of course. Um, But if we abuse our ministry and position of reconciliation we actually keep people trapped under the effects of sin and death. You know, on a smaller scale, we can feel this kind of death even in our own bodies when someone at church judges us or speaks behind our backs. Um, There's this kind of wounded, life-sucking weariness that can set in if you've ever had that happen. And so I think perhaps this is why Jesus is so emphatic about not judging one another. I do believe that we have the fullness of Christ within us. But uh, when somebody who's walking in so much manifest authority that literally even their shadow heals people, like if that guy curses you, I think potentially the spirit realm could have a more violent reaction. So here's my take. The death of Ananias and Sapphira, it's definitely out of character for Jesus. But it's not out of character for the enemy. And outbursts of anger were not out of character for Peter. So put those two things together and I think you're starting to get a picture of the truth. Like what if Ananias and Sapphira isn't a story warning the flock not to cheat the offering bucket? But what if it's actually a story about shepherds not beating their sheep? What if actually there are truly disastrous Um, life or death consequences associated with preaching sin consciousness rather than Christ consciousness. What I mean to say is this. I think Peter gravely mishandled his position as an apostle in this moment. 
And I think that's where the warning is here. Not don't lie to the Holy Spirit. Of course you shouldn't do that. But have you ever met those guys who just seem that, you know, the, the quote, quote, prophetic types who always seem bent on calling out other people's sin and pointing to it? Listen, those guys are actually killing people whether it happens instantaneously like with peter or whether it happens slowly you know you you see people who go to churches like that where people preach sin and you you just know you can see it people are wasting away there yeah no this story is a warning to those types of leaders hey knock it off you are here to bring out christ within people this This thing of like discerning evil in people's hearts and calling it out, that game is actually killing people. It's actually killing people over and over and over again. Jesus is constantly having his disciples back off from this mentality that they have something that everybody else doesn't have, that they're special, um, that they, you know, like that's what was going on. When Jesus said, hey, you don't know what spirit you're of. That is not what God is doing. Uh, this this like wrathful impulse to punish people. Um, who, who did Jesus, whose faces did Jesus get in the most? It was the Pharisees because that was their MO, was just walking around, pointing to people's failures and magnifying their own. So if you are one of those prophets, seriously knock it off you don't know what spirit you're of and if you if you are one of those people who's trapped in a church like this where there's always this really severe tone and every day you feel like you walk out beat beat up like you're never gonna give enough you're a worm you're this you're that please for the love of god for your own life's sake get out there are better places to go You don't have to sit under that fear any longer. Yeah, even now, I just feel the Holy Ghost on this. Um, This is kind of a rabbit trail, but um, I just want to pray for you right now. If you put your hand on your heart, Jesus, I pray that you open people's eyes right now. If they are trapped under a different spirit masquerading as the Holy Spirit that's manifesting death in their lives, I pray that you open their eyes to that right now and you give them the courage to get out from underneath it. I pray that you give them safe passage away um, from those abusive leaders right now in the name of Jesus. We just say freedom. And I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. I don't care um, whether you are the best little Christian who always volunteers for parking and kids ministry. Whatever your deal is, um, you are loved. You are saved. You are filled with Jesus Christ. You are made in the image of Abba Father. He has no ill will toward you. He has nothing but love for you. And even if you are struggling with some form of sin, ultimately it is not true about you. What's true about you is what Jesus says about you, that he's redeemed you, saved you, set you free, made you new. You are a new creation. And I just want to bless you. Like I know that as you hear my voice, you can feel the difference. Uh, It's like you can't even explain it. It's like the air around you opens up and you feel like, oh, this is food for my soul. Yeah, that's the Holy Spirit. God is good. If you hear people going around and they're just pointing out other people's sin and you always – look, that is not God. Um, I love those people. They're probably doing the best they can. But this is life or death to me. 
Whew, I was not planning on saying any of that. Um, wow. <laughs> but to wrap up here, this is what I want to say. The Apostle John was the most intimate with Jesus. That is to say, the Apostle John was the most intimate with God himself. And he knew Jesus' heart better than anyone. And he says in his first letter that he actually beheld and touched the word of life. The what? The word of judgment? No, no, no. Jesus is the word of life. And he said that that word spoke to him two things. That God is light and in whom there is no darkness. And God is love. And this is in my definition of love. This is the actual Bible's definition of love. That Christ, that is to say God, laid down his life for his enemies. Not smote them with worms. Not struck them down for lying about pennies. No. Paul said this. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth, always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Yeah. So like I said, I may not have perfect answers, but I want you to know that if you want to see what the Father is really like, don't look at these anomalies. Look into the eyes. Look deep into the eyes of Jesus Christ, and there you will find that if you have seen him, you have seen the Father. And from that place, you can begin to take everything else and put it in its proper place. Yeah. Yeah. Ha <laughs> ha.